Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Luis Siabra of Luis Siabra Vinos. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me here. So your dad was a coffee blender in Angola. Yes. My father went to Angola at a very young age. And in between many jobs, the last job was uh, being a coffee blender. Angola was a Portuguese colony for a long time. Yes, it was a Portuguese colony until uh, 74. And you were born in 72. So it makes sense that your parents wanted to move because there was a war of independence. Yeah, then it was the revolution, war of independence. The country was not safe anymore. So all the family, like most of the Portuguese families, they came back to Portugal. What was Portugal like in the 70s? I mean, as a kid, what was it like for you? In the 70s, Portugal changed a lot. Portugal is a totally different country. It was a much more closed society, uh, actually very close for someone that would becoming from Africa, very traditional. In the wine consumption was very traditional. Everyone would drink the same wine every day, the same brand. And even the food with very good products was not very inventive or very adventurous. So being in my house cooking a foreign dish would be something that my friends wouldn't have in their house. You went to school in the Traces Montes, right? Which is in Altadura? Yes, the university I've done there. I didn't study enology, so I studied agronomy in general and specialized in viticulture. At the young age, I was still in university. Uh, I had my first child. So I also need to start working. And someone in university proposed me to be working and teaching uh, in university. And I teach Everything related to the plants, from the cells to the tissues to all the organs in the plant. And it was an interesting experience to deal with younger people and to learn how to lead them in a certain way. A little bit like in the wines, not being interventive. Trying to lead them, but not force them to do anything. And I think in that way it was, was good. But uh, life of university, especially on that university, I don't know the others, was a bit far away from reality. So not for me. In the end of the university degree, you have to do a study. I've done a study for the government 
in relation rootstocks and, and vines and how the rootstock influenced the production, quality. And after that study, I went to work in a cooperative. That actually was a cooperative where I lived in a village in Vinverde area. Tresis Montes, where you went to school, is in the northeastern corner. Vino Verde is associated with the northwest, right? Yes, northwest, more Atlantic, colder weather, more humid, much more vigor in the vines, majority of white wines, a bit of reds, but the majority are, they would be white wines. So this was about the late 90s that you were working? That will be late 90s, so that will be 98, 99, yeah. And Vino Verde is... A historical area. It's where a lot of the wine that went to the English was made before the port area really took off. Yeah, the first exporting was from Vigne Verde. It was red wine from the Vigne Verde, not the port wine. Although the region changed a lot from then until now because around the 60s, everyone changed, 60s, 70s, everyone changed to plant white wines. Especially then after European Union Portugal got into European Union, new plantations, so a lot of white wines being planted in the region. You had always financial problems, and that's, I think, what kept Portugal as it is today as a wine country always less developed than other countries. So it's interesting to see that normally those countries, they preserve the old vines, they preserve more the variety on the vines because there's no money to do replantation. Actually, in the Douro Valley, especially, traditionally, the owner of the vineyard, the father, prunes the vineyard to leave less grapes because the main idea was always to leave that vineyard for their childrens, not to have the investment of replanting. That doesn't exist anymore, but that was the main idea. So if today we go and prune with an old man, he still prunes for lower quantities to preserve the vineyard for the next generation. So the idea is that a lower quantity vineyard will last longer? Yes. Whenever you have a vineyard that produces higher quantities, that vineyard will last a shorter time than a vineyard that produces always a small amount of grapes. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, this is an overgeneralization, but a lot of times when I think about Portuguese wines, I think about heavy wines, big, and I wonder if yields kind of play into that. They were not always like that. That is something a little bit recent, coming from the 90s, probably. There was the fashion, that was the international market, people starting exporting a little bit more. If you see the evolution of the wines in Portugal after the 90s and this new generation of winemakers, they did improve the quality of the wines a lot. So the typical faulty wines, the wines that were a little bit thin and green, they did disappear. But on the other hand, they all became the same. And I think that was the mistake. And you live that until early 2000s. Now you start seeing some changes. I think we are still doing that very slowly since the last 10, 15 years, people thinking, and and you can see different things. Typically, a Portuguese wine would have 12, 12.5%, even from Alentejo, that is on the south, would be done with different varieties. So Alentejo will be mostly done with the Trincadeira, that is the Tinta Amarela in the Douro Valley, and Alicante Boucher. That was the base of the old wines. You would have a bit of Castellão around Lisbon, Stubal, and a Douro wine would probably be a blend between Douro, Dão, and Bairrada because Portugal wines were made mainly by negociants. If we go back to the 40s and the 50s, many of the good wines were negociants doing it, meaning they wouldn't produce the wine, they would be buying the wines to different producers and doing blends. And it's something cultural, and we nowadays we think it's wrong, 
but in those days it did make sense because okay i have a very hot here in the Douro valley like a little bit of acidity let's go to down and do a blend and make this wine a little bit fresher the students that finished their university degrees in the 90s people that are now around their 40s those were people that we've been in european union a lot of money being given to invest in wineries, replant vineyards. It's not only the generation, it was also the moment. It was the moment of doing investments, of changing, of modernization. There was a lot of supports from European Union to do investments and to buy equipment. So all of that helped a little bit to happen what happened, so the wines to change. One of the things that seems to have happened in Naduro was that during that period of time when there was a lot of money for replanting from the European community, a handful of grape varieties got replanted on a very big scale, as opposed to closer to 100 grape varieties, which were probably there before. That's a consequence of one of the economic crises we had in the 80s. And then we had international support for investments. And you had a short period to decide how many varieties you should invest. And you don't have the time or the money to spend on studying each one of the varieties that you have in the Douro Valley. So you had to choose a few. That are not good or bad, it's just a choice. And you cut from 180, you cut to five. And it's interesting because that's another thing that happens in the viticulture. The fact that you're going slowly in your progress, when you don't have much money, normally you don't commit the same mistakes. In many situations, a lot of money can be a problem. Money doesn't help to solve problems. And if people think that focusing on one variety would probably be better to have a better knowledge of the soils, of the place, and how everything behaves in the final wine, but also you lose all the different varieties that exist there, and some of them will be good, some of them will be less good, but each one of them will give a different characteristic to the wine. So... The way it was done was necessary to be done like that. Concentrating in five varieties, it's already an achievement if you compare with other wine regions that have a single variety. But even though those was widely planted. The Douro Valley is a huge area. It's 40,000, 45,000 hectares of vineyards. So a lot of old vines they kept. The average vineyard area per grower, it's less than one hectare. So you have... 40,000 actors and 40,000 growers, so many of them didn't have the dimension, the money to do the investment and to replant. So there's still even today a lot of diversity. There is less and less, but there's still a lot of diversity. And one of the good things is now people wake up, and now even the local institutions are thinking, okay, what variety should we study? They often ask two different winemakers, what do you think we should study? So that's, that's important. They now they realize that having this richness of so many different varieties, it's positive. Maybe it's a, a big headache, but it's positive. After the cooperative, I went to do this investigation for the government, mostly also working with the massal and clonal selection and working with the vineyards, investigation in terms of rootstocks, the influence of the rootstock in the final wine. And it was interesting to see that or someone that was doing investigation, uh, the wine was not, was not important, the final wine. So 
we would be going to the vineyards, take all the values in terms of weight, of acidity, pH, of the grapes, sugar levels, but never actually vinify the wine. So it was very interesting arriving and they said, well, shouldn't we do the vinification of the wine and try to understand how is the behavior of the wines? It was an interesting process and it was interesting to see that by the fact that we were doing this much later than all the other countries, we learned. So the government would never sell clonal material to the growers. You'd always sell massal material to the growers. Were they cleaned up for viruses or no? In general, they were. There was one variety and it was a big discussion in the massal selection for the viticulture. Alvarinho still have virus. And I remember to go to international meetings and other countries would laugh at us. How can you still have virus in your vineyards? But we did realize that the plants that have the virus they tend to give better wines than the ones that don't. So should we take them out or not? And it does make sense. So if you have an area where the vines are a little bit more productive, the virus would lower the amount of kilo per vine. And in general, those plants with virus, they would give the best, the best wines. And I think it was a very courageous decision saying, okay, no, we stay with the virus. Because if not, we'd be losing something very important to the region. And the other thing you did was work a lot with rootstocks, right? Like yeah. In different soil types? Yeah. And so we spoke about two regions, which is Vino Verde and the Duro. Yeah. And really, those are both pretty big places with numerous subzones. But to overgeneralize, in Vino Verde, it's granite soil. And in the Duro Valley, it's schist. Yes. The big majority of Vinuverde, it's granite soil. You have a small areas in the region of Ponte Lima and others that have a little bit of schist. But the big majority of Vinuverde is granite. The Douro have different kind of schists, but the outskirts of the Douro, you have granite. But the big majority in Douro is schist. In both regions, the viticulture that produced the grapes were normally not the same person that vinified the grapes. And that kept a certain distance between the soil, the local, and the final wine. And you still feel that today. And that's something cultural. I'm, I'm not in Burgundy doing the same plot every year and then receiving from my father, passing to my children. And then after three, four generations, you know clearly what you have. You have a perfect knowledge of the total area. The fact that the vinification was so far away from the local, there's still not a connection with the place. And still today, you have a lot of winemakers, when they explain the wine, they tell you all the technological things they use on the winery, how many months skin contact, how many pump-overs doing the hard fermentation, how many days uh, cold soaking, uh, the type of the barrel, uh, how many rack-offs. They never talk about the place in the soil. And the way to explain the wine, because you go to other countries and they probably explain it a totally different way. So this is this vineyard, this is this wine. It doesn't matter how I made it. It's very interesting to see that we are still, we are still living this. So this generation of winemakers are still talking more about the winery than about the vineyard. But you came from an agronomy background and not an enology background. Yeah. And so you had a little bit of a different point of view, especially when you're doing trials of rootstocks and different soil types, right? That could be one reason. I'm not the only one. I don't think I'm the only one that studied viticulture and went to do the wines. But on these changes on the 90s, it was interesting to see the houses 
how they organize themselves, the big companies, they will have a team for the viticulture and a team for the winemaking. And that doesn't happen only in Portugal. Uh, I think here also happened in oh, California, California you know, like that. And it doesn't make sense. Doing the wines, you should do both things. You should do viticulture and you should do the winemaking. Still today, you have this difference. So a lot of the people of the vineyard was also not interested on the result of the final wine. And they are very professional doing the grapes. But sometimes it's difficult to explain that you have a very pretty grapes, you have a very pretty vineyard, really looks nice, just doesn't have the same quality. Of course, no one will understand if you ask, well, can you do a, a worse job than what you're doing to have a better quality grapes? So when you have the two teams separate, one team doesn't speak the same language of the other. Or that can happen. I'm not saying that it's always like that, but that can happen. Implied in that is almost that more inputs can be detrimental to the final wine quality. Is that what you're saying? If you overwork it, it's not good? If you want to have a vineyard that is always green and pretty, if you add a lot of nutrients to the vine, if you treat a lot the vineyard, in the end you have a pretty grapes, probably a fairly balanced amount of grapes spread around the vineyard, but eventually, or you have too many grapes, that can be, or the pH, the acidity is not well balanced, or you have high quantities of potassium and then the pH will drop in the winery. So many different things can happen if you do it very well, that vineyard. Mainly, for me, mainly it's when you add a lot to the vineyard, when you add a lot of nutrients. It's something that you cannot measure. So if you measure pH, alcohol content, total acidity, all the values, they even look nicer. But what people don't measure, it's to taste the wine in the end. And wine is something very subjective. So it's very difficult. And we may taste the same wine and have totally different ideas or even change the idea about the wine tasting in different moments. So it's very subjective. And giving two glasses to someone that work in the vineyard and taste this and taste that. Don't you feel this one have more deepness? It's a longer wine. It's a more serious wine. Normally, people understand, okay, I have more color, less color, pH, tannins. The wine is much more than that. It's the combination of all of that. So that tends to create a certain distance between the two worlds if you're not responsible for both. One of the first things you did when you took up a job at Nieport, the house, is that you asked to do both. You asked to do viticulture and analogy, not one or the other. Yeah, I started at Nieport in 2004. Nieport was already working like that. So the previous winemaker there was already responsible for the viticulture. But yes, one of the things were, well, doesn't make any point if I'm all doing only viticulture or doing only the wines. I think doing both, it's what makes all the sense. How did that job come about with Nieport? By then I was working in a consulting company that I was working with small growers in the Douro Valley and in Vinverde. More in Vinverde than in the Douro Valley, but I was working in both areas. and. One night, a friend of mine called me and said, well, do you know that Newport is looking for someone? Dirk Newport is looking for someone. Oh, okay, and what do I have to do with that? And she told me, well, you know, he's a bit crazy. You're a bit crazy. Maybe you two are going to get along. So we had a good laugh, and, uh, and I went to talk with him. What was that conversation like? Uh, well, I, I went to his place, and we were talking for a while about many different things. The CV, I think it's less important in this moment. A nice CV everyone can show, but uh, 
having a conversation is much more interesting. And by the end of this conversation, he gave me a wine without knowing what it is and serving in the glass. And it was Charm 2002. Which is a Nipport wine. Well, it was a Nipport wine and was the first year of that wine to be released. It was already a, a, a famous wine, so you already had a lot of people talking about the wine. It was a dry wine from the Douro. A dry wine from the Douro, yes. And I remember, well, what do you think about the wine? And well, smell the wine, taste the wine, and say, well, the, the oak is very good on the wine. It's really good oak. And well, what else? And then, I'm, well, very good oak. And then the third time, yeah, very good oak. And he got the same answer three times on the row. And of course, he laughed. And we smiled both because the oak was a little bit on top of the wine. Uh, and then I started working. But I remember that period because I also worked as a sommelier in the late 90s. And I remember that period where wines were often defined by how expensive they were to make. It's expensive to buy good oak. So it was considered rare in yeah. certain countries to have it. And then that seemed great. And now when people look back often, they kind of look back with a different lens and say like, well, how could you over oak it? That's a cycle. That was a period. And by then, early 2000, everything in Doro was hokey and you know new, a lot of new oak being by and and a little bit more extraction not in the case of this wine but uh, that was a moment for those wines and people were doing the wines like that i don't have any idea what was going on at Nearport, but it seems to me like sometimes with the dry wines of the duro in that era there was some level of acidification and sometimes i find that oak hangs a little bit more differently more obviously with acidified wines in general in Doro, is still a lot of acidification because in many cases, you don't have the balance, especially if you don't search for the right vineyards to do the table wines. So if you get a very good vineyard for ports that is planted 200 meters altitude, south-facing, give amazing ports. But if you want to have a wine with freshness, harvest at the right moment, you don't have much acidity. So acidifying, or then you have wines with more than 4 pH. That's another thing. Everyone came from winemaking school. Everyone knows that the pH has to be this. So everyone had to lower the pH, so acidifying the wines. It's true, I think, acidifying the wines, you can feel it on the palate. It's easy. You, you feel a, a metallic acidity separated from the wine. I never noticed the fact that the oak would be showing more on those wines or not. I think it was more the, um, the manage of the aging of the wines in barrel. In those days, wines that were very extracted, people didn't rack off the wines that often. And I think, okay, if you want to do a very extracted wine, so do it more rack-offs. The wines need oxygen, the tannins need oxygen to get to the right place. But no, at that time, people want, still today a bit, they want to preserve the fruit as much as they can. So they do everything to preserve the fruit. They want to have the malolactic fermentation as soon as possible. They want to correct that with sulfur. They want to preserve that beautiful moment of the youth of the wine that is impossible to preserve. And that makes taking many decisions that go against stabilizing the wine to be able to age. So in many cases you have a wine that it's shut down by the early amount of sulfur added to the wine. The malolactic is completely done. Then you keep in the barrel in the very reductive conditions because you are afraid the oxygen will destroy your aromatic character of the wine but then the tannins need oxygen to combine and to get rounder and they don't especially if you do a short aging 
So if you have a extracted wine and you do one year aging in barrel, even worse. Or if you have a new barrel, the wines start to have this barrel character, this barrel taste, people get afraid and take them out. For me, it's the biggest mistake. This is the moment when you have to leave more of the wine. You have to rack off the wine and leave it more in the barrel. The wine needs to digest that wood. So when you add that up, you will get those kind of big, more alcoholic and a little bit elbows, kind of, the, they yeah. had strong yeah. elbows kind yeah. of wines, the dark yeah. wines yeah. Of, the, yeah. of the 90s. Yeah. In general, the region, yes. Those are the wines of the region. 14, 15% alcohol, dark color, a lot of oak, and then people promising that those wines are going to live forever. You buy it, put it on your shelf, in 20 years you can drink it. Quickly they learn that after six or seven years, the wines are dead. And they learn, and they know that, okay, doesn't make any point to do those big wines. Like, but Douro Valley or Portugal was not the only part of the country that was doing wines like that. It was a little bit around the world. Uh, so those big wines that some people still say that those wines are going to live forever, those are the first ones to die. You can have wines from the beginning of last century from Bordeaux and from other areas, from many areas, even from Portugal, that didn't have that much alcohol. They had a lot of acidity and they had a lot of tenants. That's what they had. But somehow people, I think, in general, they are afraid of tenants. Or on the 90s, the wines were really extracted, they really have tenants, but they were so alcoholic, so sweet that you don't feel the tenants. Or we are already on the other extreme, not, not many producers, but I think you already start seeing a little bit around the world, the extreme of the wines, they are not touched at all. They are almost like rosé wines. Because people don't want to feel the tenants. And in both cases, I can agree or not with the style. I may like it or not. In many hot areas, this style of no extraction whatsoever give very good wines to drink. I just don't believe those wines can age. I think what you're addressing there is more later in the game where you see what can be summed up as infusion rather than extraction. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like what you're seeing now, yeah. basically. We're yeah. kind of in the middle of the infusion trend not only infusion infusion i think infusion is what i do but i leave the wines with the skin for 30 days i think on the other extreme and that will be the well majority will be at least extracting less but there are already some producers doing even less than that doing very short skin contact taking out very early not touching at all only all and and that also i think some way in the middle there's a balance the two extremes are extremes. I really have no idea what it's like in Portugal in terms of what people drink, but what you're describing in terms of a lot of whole cluster, very short skin contact, infusion, very gentle punch downs or no punch downs, and then some pump overs, not a lot of racking. That's kind of what's popular right now in New York. I mean, for reds. It is, but it, that's still rare in Portugal. You don't have that many wines like that in Portugal. It's still rare, but that will be more popular now. But it's always a question of balance. But Portugal, although people are changing their palate, you still have a lot of consumers that like these big extracted wines, probably like here. Uh, well, not New York, but probably other parts in the States. People still like these big wines. And you've made the point to me before that it's those big extracted wines that are still getting the big scores within Portugal. Well, in many cases, yes. People are already talking about something different, but they're really tasting like in the past. So in many cases, yes, if you have a lot of people judging wine, and it's normal, and tasting is something that is very unfair. 
because you have 20 seconds to taste the wine. That's not the way to know the wine. And of course, you have a lineup of 10. The first one that jumps out of the glass and comes to you, that's the one that is the best one. And even myself, so many times I taste blindly, kind of speed tasting with so many different wines, and you realize that if I give higher score to this wine, but this is not the wine I want to drink, and if I give time to the glasses and I have half an hour, probably my decision will change completely. So tasting in general, this, this kind of tasting is not fair for the wine. I think you only know wine when you drink the same bottle in three different situations. Some days you like more, some days you like less. So, so if you taste like that, it's normal that you score higher the wines that jump out of the glass. And I think that that's true of both of those kinds of wines. In other words, I think when you taste, say, 2,500, 125 wines, the big dark extracted one stands out. But what I've also found is that the intercellular infusion one also stands out. Of course. And it actually tastes delicious if you have a lot of tannic buildup. If you have been tasting 100 wines and you have a lot of tannins in your mouth, when you taste one of those intercellular wines, tastes they clean your palate. Like spring water. It stands out for this reason. It's not that the method of selection has changed, and we're actually doing the same thing. Yeah. It's just that we're picking the 180-degree different wine. Yeah. Whenever you have this fast approach to the wine, you never have the final result. And some extracted wines, uh, it's not like extracted wines are not good. There are some regions typically producing a kind of wine, some others producing other style of wines. And everything that generalizes the wines and uniformizes all different kinds of wines, I think this is negative. And I probably commit the same mistake. In the case of the Doro Valley, we really don't know what is typical in the Doro Valley. But if you only do whole cluster, not, you're leading the wine in a certain way. <laughs> and you're already interventing the wine and probably running away from the place and what the place should be because technique of vinification is also part of the terroir, it's also part of the, part of the place. So all those techniques, if in the 90s, over-extracted new oak would be covering and making all the wines taste the same. Eventually, if we all do whole cluster, no touch on the wine, we're also doing the same thing, just on the other side of the wall. The people that I see getting the most acclaim for that kind of style, and I like so many of the wines actually myself, and visit and buy them, and have had those people on the show, but the people who seem to be doing it most successfully seem to be doing it from old vines, you know, 80, 100-year-old vines, and then you do an infusion instead of an extraction, and it, it has the character of the old vine, but a real prettiness. And when you combine that, it's easily accessible in youth, like you can drink it young, especially if you like preserve the CO2 and you don't yeah. use a lot of sulfur. At the same time, the part that sometimes I'm missing is the part that talks about the soil, on the palate, I mean. If you do it wines that you don't extract, it's better you have a lot of concentration in the grapes. Or is a region that, like Dori, you have a lot of concentration normally. Or if you can choose an old vine, have more concentration, more depthness. You don't need to extract because everything is there. So it makes sense that those wines taste better. Uh, if you do it in a certain way, you can show the soil. The soil is easy to appear. In the case of Dori, it's Actually, it's kind of obvious, although people don't look at it as I think they should. If you have, for instance, the blue slate soil, 
if you have a lot of areas in the Doro Valley with the blue slate, it's a much harder stone. So you have less, much less clay. Uh, so when you taste the wines, they're always a little bit more tighter, a bit more rustic. The tannins are only a bit more edgy, and they are much more, I would say, more close, more graffiti kind of kind of aromas. If you have the yellow slate, that is much more easy to to break. You have much more clay on the on the soil. The wines tend to be much rounder. It's a bit like Cote de Bonne, Cote de Nuit, the difference. So you have wines that are more generous, rounder, more pretty at the beginning, and they are not better or worse, they are two different style of wines. And it's interesting to see if you really vinify it separately, you have different results in general of those wines. You can do that whole cluster without whole cluster, extracting more, extracting less, you're going to have the same result. So the way of vinifying the wine, I don't think is an excuse not to be talking about the soil. It doesn't matter. But if you're only worried about that, of course, it's difficult to arrive to the soil. Or if you do a blend of many different soils, of course, it doesn't make any sense because in the end, it's a blend. Historically, in the Duro, were there grape varieties associated with certain kinds of soil types? Like were certain white grape varieties planted more on the blue slate, for instance, or something like that? No. The association was always the altitude of the vineyards and the place of the vineyards and if it would be a good area for port or not. It's interesting because if you travel around the Duro, if you really try to understand the vineyards, Many of the old people, they knew what they do. Many of them just replanted what the neighbor had. But many of them, they really know what they would be doing. In a warm areas, you would have a majority of varieties that can handle better the high temperatures. So you had Turiga Franca that have a problem with high pH, but the alcohol never goes that high. Uh, you would have Tinta Francisca that can handle quite well the high temperatures. You would have, in the high altitude vineyards, Tinta Amarela, if it's a short cycle and sensitive to the diseases. Tinta Barroca survive a lot of diseases, so any soil with a bit more humidity, they would put Tinta Barroca. So there was some logic on that, and there was some logic on making the blends as the final wine. So you'd have a, a variety with more tannins, Tinto Cão. You'd have varieties with more color, Sozão or Alicante Boucher. You'd have varieties with freshness and acidity that they would give a good apport of acid to the wine. You would have the Bastardo, that is the Trousseau in the old vines, and a variety called Morisco that no one wants today that was big berries to give volume, to give something liquid, because probably when they harvested for the ports, they had plenty of raisins and they would need a little bit more liquid to make a little bit more wine. So all of that combination was thinking on the final wine. And also a way of keeping the production even every year, although every year the wine was a bit different because you have one variety producing more than the other. You have a better year for one variety or a better year for another variety. But it was a way for the grower to always have some production, so to always be able to sell some grapes to live from that. But one of the keys to what you're saying there is that it's about elevation. It's about elevation. There's a, a system that gives points to the vineyards, very old system, done to classify the vineyards for the ports. And in between many characteristics, one is the type of the soil. So the more stony soil would have higher classification. A lower altitude would have higher classification. Uh, south facing would have higher classification. Then certain kind of varieties on the blend would also give a different kind of classification. That classification of the vineyards is still used today 
to give every year to every grower the quantity they are allowed to produce of port wines. And that was already discussed to change the system, but no one got a better idea how the system can be changed. It is a basic work, but it was an enormous work working all that region and classifying all the vineyards in terms of that characteristics. And that, for instance, could be a good starting point to start to know better what you have. Although that was mainly done focusing on port wines, not the Douro wines. So the perspective of a, a very good vineyard that was classified for port wine, in my point of view, it's not the best vineyard that we should use for a great Douro wine. Some other people have a different idea, but okay. But at least we should see the region in a different perspective when you think in a steel wine versus a port wine, a fortified wine. There's these two tracks of a dry red or white table wine, and then there's a fortified wine track, and they kind of run concurrently, and some of the thinking of one kind of floods into the other. Yes. It might be great to have a lower elevation vineyard for a port, but that might make a wine that doesn't have enough acidity for a dry table wine. Yes. That happens in the vineyard, but also in the winery. If you have a team vinifying port wines, they have a certain mentality. Port wine vinification, it's very schematic. You have to three days to extract as much as you can from the wine because you only have three days. A port, you want all the tannins, you want all the color possible. You work very methodically. You know what sugar did the grapes arrive into. You know what sugar you, you want to have in the port wine in the end, how much alcohol you have to add. You have three days, work a lot, get out, get another one. All the harvest of port is this. It's mathematic. Keep on doing it. There are some variations you can do, but that, not that many variations. If you think like that, you're not open-minded for the door wines. Because on the door wines, you can have much more variation. You can taste the wine, decide leading in another direction, do pump-overs, do punch-downs, extract more, extract less, higher temperature, lower temperature. Uh, all kind of different decisions you can take just by following the wine, tasting or understanding the vineyard and going different ways. The two teams don't have the same. You tend to think in a certain way when you're doing the wines. So if you focus on port, it's difficult to focus on the Doro wines. And if you focus on the Doro wines, you also don't do a good port because that's religious. If you have to work the lagar three times a day a lot, it's nothing that you can decide, no, let's work a little bit less. This, this is mathematics. You don't discuss. You go there and do it. So if you have a team doing Doro wines, they're not really focused on doing this mathematical work on the port wine. I think one of the reasons in the Doro Valley, the port wine houses took some time to grow on the Doro wines. I think it's because they didn't separate the teams completely. And completely, I mean, different wineries. Don't do the wines in the same winery. It's possible, of course it's possible, and you can organize the things to be done, but it's much easier to separate all of them if you have money to the investments and do someone focus on the port, someone focus on the Dura wines, and it works much better. And that's that mentality that is still being changed to be able to produce wines that have less color, less alcohol, because the mentality there, it's concentration, color, and alcohol, it's good. So you have to change mentality of the grower in the vineyard, you have to change the mentality of the winemaker is from the region or the producer from the region that always done like that. You have to change the mentality of the institution that approves your wines when you bottle 
because they're still thinking that a good wine, it's the one that have wood and more alcohol and more concentration. So that takes time. We're going to change, but that is going to take a, a bit more time. For me, one of the first Portuguese Douro red wines that didn't seem highly extracted and dark were the wines that I was seeing from Neport. And so you started there in 04, and what was your mandate at that time? I mean, what were you told to do? Dirk Neport was ready to change everything completely. And the only thing I ask is, well, you really want to change. Can you live with that? Don't you need to explain that to your consumer that you were doing wines like that? And once he, he defends the position and he's okay with that, you're free to go and it's much easier to do the job. But there was a change already in 2004 and later even more. Uh, but that was a big change. One of the things that happened was a new winery facility was built in 2007 for Nipar. That was a big job. Yes. Well, when I arrived, the conditions were not incredible. The conditions wouldn't allow for Nipar to grow a lot in terms of production. It was impossible. So after a while, after studying of many years, in 2007, they started the construction of the new winery. And the thing about that is that some of the things that you mentioned earlier in terms of technique you started to work through in the new winery. So, for instance, you started to do longer macerations in the new winery because you could. Exactly. So, if you don't have enough vets, you cannot do longer macerations. It's impossible. You have to speed up. You have a lot of grapes arriving and you cannot do that. Once you have space enough and you decide, okay, those wines, they can stay longer time here. We have more space. I'm in paradise. Jesus, the wine can stay here for entire months. What's happening? I don't need to take it out. And not taking the decision just because I have another truck of grapes arriving and I have to speed up. Gradually, more whole cluster got used as well, right? Uh, yes. Well, uh, when I arrived at Newport, they would be using all cluster in all the ports, in Charm too, but not on the other wines. It was with my arrival then that stems uh, were start to be using in other wines too. Never 100%, different percentage, but we'll be using a little bit more. Were there other dry wine producers in the Duro using a lot of whole cluster on red at that time? At that time, I don't think any would be a rarity. In your own wine production today, often you use 100% whole cluster, and it's been a, an evolution from the time at Neport to then having your own winery. But what did you start to see as you use more and more whole cluster on red? The idea of the whole cluster is always to give freshness to the wines. You give some spicy character, you add something else, but it's the freshness that the whole cluster give to the wines. The more quiet fermentation you have, so the temperature doesn't raise that much, the fermentation doesn't go that fast, and I think it clearly gives wines that are totally different. Uh, when I start my own wines, I did start with a higher percentage of whole cluster, higher percentage of stems, and was in 2014, with Indy 2014, that made me thought that eventually should do whole stems for all of it. It comes from the vineyard, it's part of the vineyard. And 14 was a really difficult year, a lot of rain, cold year. And doing this wine in Lagar, Futroden, with all the stems, from a higher vineyard, colder, you had a wine that was green in the beginning. And green that may put a little bit people off the wine because it's too green, but it's a lovely wine after aging. So... Eventually, what that wine teach me is don't be afraid of green at all. That wine was really, really veggie and really undrinkable at the young stage, but it aged 
in a totally different way. I think the stems now, they are really part of the style of the wines. We should never use a recipe for the wines. We should never do it as a rule. So that's not the idea. But I think that the wines have that freshness, have that characteristic higher tone on the spicy character because of the stems. When people tell me they don't want to use stems, one of the things that they say that they're trying to avoid, there's always different reasons, but one is that they don't want the green character because it seems too rustic. Although people who really like stems say that that green character tends to evolve into a bottle and become the bottle bouquet that we enjoy so much. Yeah. One of the things that has been mentioned to me, and I don't know because I'm not a winemaker, is that you really have to be careful with the sulfur add with that greenness because you can sort of lock it in if you add too much sulfur at the wrong time. Yes. I tell you, in Doru, it's not easy to have that greenness. I would wish I would have much more. It's not normal. You don't have that much greenness on the wine. But yes, if it is a wine that have a certain kind of level of green character, you have to age this wine. And of course, you don't want to block this wine with a lot of sulfur in the beginning. And then it's not able to age and to develop these aromas and even the tannins in a different way. There's no bad or wrong. I think we're living in a, in a world now, in the wine world, that you have people on both sides of the wall throwing stones and no one discuss anything, just throwing stones to each other. And you can do very good wines without stems at all, and they can be very good. Just if you're using stems, use it carefully, think, and don't extract the same way that you do it when you don't use it. So if I'm using stems and doing a hard pump-overs or use a bad pump to do pump-overs or do it three times a day, half an hour, of course you're going to have bad greenness on the wine and the wine is not going to be good. But it's not the fault of the stems. It's the fault that if you have the stems, you have to work in a different way. There's another discussion on the stems that you have to harvest when they are ripe. Uh, I don't know what is ripe stems in the Douro Valley. Brown stems in the Douro Valley, it's when the grapes have 18% alcohol. So go for the port, don't do any wine. So when I harvest the wines and use 100% stems, they're all green, green, green. And people, well, don't you wait? In Douro Valley, I cannot wait for riper stems because the alcohol of the wine will be so high that it will be impossible. So you see that across grape varieties. Because, you know, sometimes people who... Grosseron and Northern Rhone will tell me they use green stems. Yeah. But you're saying that for a number of local grape varieties because what you do today is you often for your red wines blend four, five, six, seven different grape varieties. Yeah, yeah. The vineyards are a field blend, so normally it's everything it's blended. There's not many varieties that I wouldn't use the stems, but there's one variety that I learned by experience that if you're doing a steel wine and you want some elegance, my experience and what I've done until today, better not to use stems, is tint to come. Tintucan, when you use the stems, can be really rustic and really hard. It's a variety that have already a lot of tannins already, so there's no point to use the stems. If I'm doing 100% Tintucan, I don't put any stems. Tintucan exists in the world probably because of the tannins for the port wine. Back to Neport a little bit, because you were there for nine years, so I don't want to skip over it too fast. And I think it was kind of a laboratory for you in terms of working through some of the concepts that you took to your own winery later. One of those, I think, would be maturation in wood. For instance, now you use a number of different sources of wood, and you spoke earlier about how you have to be careful not to pull the wines out too quickly, especially if you're looking to soften some of the tannins that you can find in the Duro. So now you're at Neport, 
it's growing and you get a chance to really work through some of your ideas. So when it came to maturation and wood, what did you find? There was a rule of aging in barrel in the Doro in general. And I think the decision has to be taken wine by wine. And there's not a rule to do it. So logistically, it's much easier if you put the wines all at the same time in barrel, take them out, rack off all at the same time, and then leave at the same time because you're stacking barrels on top of the others. So it's much better to do it like that. It's much more practical. It's the way that still today, I think majority of people do it. But if you really follow different wines, uh, you see that different wines need different barrel regime and the way you work and the way you use the barrels. In the region, one of the main ideas, it's the heavier is the wine, the more extracted is the wine, the more it can handle the new oak. I don't think so. I think the lighter wine, the less extracted, is the one that can handle better the oak. When you have a wine with a lot of tannins, with the tannins of the new oak, they fight. And it takes much more time to digest all that wood. When you have a lighter wine with lesser structure, the tannins can even help to give some structure to the wine, and the wine really absorbs much better the oak and integrates much better the oak. It's still my idea today. It's still against the majority of what people think in the region today. Another thing is the aging in barrel. It's much easier if you can sell your wine in one year because you're selling earlier the wine. But many of the wines in the Douro Valley, and especially if they have more extraction, they need more time in barrel and not in bottle. Because there are many people that believe that the wine, once goes to the bottle, is going to develop, is going to age, and just put it in bottle and wait six months before it comes to the market, or one year, or two years. It does, I think in the long term it does, but then don't wait six months, wait three years or four. But of course, you don't have money for that in general, when you are a wine producer. I think the wine has to go balance already to the bottle. And that may need more than two years in barrel. It's a lot of investment. It's a problem, logistical problem. But that helps a lot. The bottle doesn't do miracles. People always think, no, no, the wine is a bit tannic, a bit, a bit too much oak, but it needs time in bottle. No, 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 the bottle is not going to do a miracle. The wine is not going to change if you go to the bottle. So this is one of the things that I learned. It's Lighter wines handle better younger oak. More heavy wines, they need all the barrels. To me, it seems like behind that is this idea that there's a great mix and there's a different elevations. So you can really get a starting place that's very different. Whereas if I was in the Northern Rhone and I was just working with Syrah and Chayo, there's not so much difference in the raw materials. Or if I'm in Burgundy and I'm always working with Pinot Noir, I feel like for you, the starting gate for each wine is different based on where it's sourced from and what it is. So that's part of the reason why you have to constantly go wine by wine to make these decisions. Doing wines in the Doro Valley, if you source in different vineyards, it's a micado. You can do a thousand different wines. Uh, we're talking vineyards spread in between 80 and 800 meters altitude, 180 different varieties, the same vineyard with more than 100 meters difference between the bottom and the top. That's one of the reasons why it's difficult to have a proper knowledge of the region. There's so many different ways to do it, so many different situations you can add to the wine to make a different wine that you can do a thousand different things. And yes, that's why you should think about it. And in many cases, 
in the end, what you end up doing, it, it's blending the extremes. So less in my case now, but when you work in the big house, you know, you have very high vineyard and you have a very low vineyard. Oh, this is a little bit too ripe. This is a little bit unripe. So blend the two and the balance, you're going to have it with the extremes. In the wine in general, you can have different kind of balance. You can have a balance where you have one single tone or you can have a balance to the extremes. So a sweet wine, for instance, you want very high acidity and higher as possible as more sugar you have. You have the two extremes to get the balance. And in the in the dry wine, a little bit the same thing. You can have this balance adding a little bit of acidity from one vineyard, a little bit of ripeness from another. And that's why you have this culture of blending. That blending has to be done before the vinification and not afterwards. You can also blend. So you can also blend the wine high alcohol, low alcohol, high acidity, low acidity. But even the grape varieties, so vinifying Toriga Franca, Tinta Roriz, Toriga Nacional separately and then blend, you have one result. If you put them together in the vat fermenting, you have a different result. And I think a better result. More harmonious. When I look at pictures of the Duro, it seems like there's undulating hills. And so I imagine there's different exposures. And I imagine different years give different climate conditions. And so I imagine if you're making single vintage wine, when a lot of port is not single vintage, that those complexities are multiplied. You come from a year, then you thought, no, I know everything. Now I know how to do the wines. And then the next harvest, you don't know again. And oh, this is a different year. And we always try to compare the the last vintage with the previous ones. And we always say, oh, this is exactly like 2007, 2008, or this 14 was like 2008. It's never like that. Never. We never do exactly the same harvest. We don't have exactly the same weather. We don't have exactly the same production. It's really a different harvest. So this make you take different decisions in the winery. If you go with a preconceived idea of how to vinify the wine and, okay, this is my best wine, I always done like that, this is the way to do it, and then you keep on doing this every year, maybe you get the year that you didn't get it that well because you're always doing like that. All these variations also have to make you to adapt. Maybe if I'm doing always in the same exact vineyard in the region that you have less fluctuations, in terms of weather, everything, maybe it would be easier to do similar vinification. If not, you have to adapt. Maybe that explains why certain famous dry Duro table wines weren't released every year. In this case, the year is the most important thing and not the way you vinified on the wine for the decision. So you taste the wine and you really decide, well, this is a good year to age or not. And it's a very difficult thing to do because in many cases, we can get wrong. And we bet on one year and four or five years later or 10 years later or 20 years later, we see maybe this was not exactly the year that we were supposed to bottle. And that can happen. I have a little bit that sensation between sevens and eights in the Doro. I was a big defender of 2008. It was a cold year, so perfect year for what I like to drink, what I like to do. And recently tasting some wines comparing seven and eights, and the seven that was a bit warmer here, but with a very good tennis structure, they are more alive. And the freshness of the eights got suddenly a little bit more flabby. And the wines are a little bit fading away now. And I, five years ago, 
10 years ago, I would be clear, no, no, 8 is clearly better than 7. So in Bordeaux, people talk about this is a Cabernet Sauvignon year, this is a Merlot year, it didn't flower, we had mildew. Are there situations where you have, in the Duro, a grape variety that falls apart that year? Like, in that year, it's just no Tintacao, or the opposite. You have uh, varieties that have uh, problems on flowering. So one of the varieties, Torino Sinal, Malvasia, Fina, for the white wines, they are very sensitive on the flowering, so that you can lose a lot of this variety. And, you know, you have different cycles in terms of flowering. So the first varieties, if they get rainy weather, so the flowering will not be that good. So in one year, you have better than one variety or, or another variety. That was the main reason, one of the main reasons why the growers used to plant mixed varieties, because in the end, you always had production with something. And you can have one year that that variety in the blend almost don't exist because everything was lost in the flowering, for instance. And so again, that leads back into a situation in a winery where maybe you want to make a little different decisions this year than you did last year. Yes, that can happen, especially if you have a big amount of that variety in a specific vineyard. If we're talking about very old vineyards where you have you can have 10 or 15 different varieties, the fluctuation is not that high. Actually, it's very interesting to see when you work with old vines, you feel less the years on the old vine. First, because if it is a, a year with less water, they have deeper roots. It didn't change that much. The older is the vine, the less important is the variety. So it tends to be more even, so you tend to feel less the difference of the years in the older vine. In the younger vine, in the Doro Valley, you can suffer a lot. You have a warm year, very dry, and really the vineyards struggle to survive. The grapes are not balanced. The acidity, it's out of control. And that may happen in a, a young vineyard quite often. If you have an old vineyard just beside, you start understanding the difference between an old vine and a young vine. So back to the Neatport story, I mean, what did you see in terms of lees? What was your approach to letting wines be in reduction, to racking them, to stirring leaves? What were you doing? In the white wines, by then you had plenty of whites in the Douro Valley with batonage, so with the leaves that were steered when they were aging in barrel. And in the warm climate like the Douro Valley, you get two barrels. Could be the more acid vineyard that you have. And one barrel you do batonage, the other one you don't do it. And the first three months, the barrel with batonage is the one that is the most beautiful one. It's like makeup. The wines are round, beautiful, without edges. After the total aging, after one year, that wine with batonage, it's flabby and tired. And the wine without batonage, it's alive and kicking. And that makes a big difference. So you do that once and, and you learn quickly that lease in the Doro Valley or I think in any warm area, you shouldn't touch them. And I really think that you should touch the leaves when you're really in a very cold area, in a very complicated year with very high acidity. Okay, you are in Chablis, in a very cold year. A bit of batonage can help. In terms of working the leaves with the reds, that's a different story. In the Doro Valley, everyone is afraid of leaves. Everyone is afraid of contamination, of microorganism development. So they want to take 
the wine out of the lease as fast as possible. They normally put the wine in barrel already after malolactic. The wines preserve better the fruit. So if you do malolactic in barrel, you lose on the fruit. But all the wine is much more integrated. For that, you take risks of having the lease in the wine. And I prefer to do that. Malolactics in the Douro Valley, they go quickly. So by December, normally everything is done, if not before. There are some years, rare years, that you can have it in March, and those for me are the best years when you have a late mallow, but in Douro Valley, it's very rare. So I normally tend to put the wines in barrel, and I used to do it at Newport too, put the wines in barrel to do malolactic in barrel. And they would stay with the lease. Eventually, at Newport, I would be wrecking the big majority after the Malolatic, meaning March, around that area. In my case now, there are eventually some wines that I don't even wreck off. Depends. I think the more delicate fruit you have, the less extracted wines you have, the more you want to preserve that. You don't have tannins that aggressive that they need oxygen. So you should preserve that so you shouldn't touch. And eventually those can stay with the lease a little bit longer time. It's also not a rule. I think you have to taste and decide. I think the majority of people have big problems with reduction. Uh, I tend to like reductive wines. In Portuguese, the old people used to say it's better to have a reductive wine than an oxidized one. So that preserves the wine in a certain way. And that happened with me in many cases. Wines that in the beginning were very reductive to the point that I had people going to the winery and saying, well, don't you think this wine is a bit off so much reduction? And with experience, I learned that you have to leave them. If it's not the really bad reduction, you don't even need to take them out of the barrels. Leave them there. That reduction will pass away with time, slowly, if you don't flood the wine with sulfur, of course. And I work with low sulfur, so it's easier. In that case, you just need patience. You'd like this wine to survive for a while in the bottle. You're, you're going to tire it out if you rack it off in the reductive phase. And exactly. you don't want to do that. And the upshot of that is that you'd like some bottle evolution in a positive way. All my wines that I do today, I do them for them to survive in the bottle. I don't know how many years they're going to survive. I have an idea. I cannot prove it because the first wines are from 2013. But my idea is to make wines that you can age in the bottle. So one of the things about those Neport wines is that they seem topped up to me. They didn't seem like there was room for oxidation around the edge of the wine. It seemed like there was frequent topping up. Is that true or no? Frequent topping up in the barrels? Yeah. I do it still today. I still do that today. Uh, top up each two weeks. It's interesting because topping up the wines can be also a way for you to add oxygen into the wines. Actually, the action of topping up the wines add more oxygen than you just rotate the barrel, keep it closed, and don't add any more wine. You oxidize more topping up than topping up. Many Bordeaux houses and other producers, you know, they simply don't top up. They rotate right. a little bit the barrel. And that barrel always have a little bit of empty space, but they don't touch that wine. In the end, you had less added oxygen to the wine. That It's not necessarily better or worse, it's just a different result. But 
for sure you have less added oxygen to the wine than if you're there topping up every two weeks. That's interesting that you say that because that's exactly what they're doing at Petrus. That's one way to do it. So at Neport, what was the approach to blending? Because there were several different reds. What did the blending table look like? When I work for someone else, I... I really want the wines to be of that person. So I was working for Newport. They were Newport wines. I may had my touch on the wines, but the owner of the company, they they should like the wine. They should be together with the wine, understand the wine, and, and agree with the wine. What would be fun in a big house with so many different wines is you can play around, and you can play a lot with different blendings, and you can add this and add that and add that, and more thinking on the style of the wine. So rarely a wine there was a single vineyard, so it was a style. So you would have to think like a champagne house. You want to keep the style of that wine. This wine should be like this. With experience, we always knew that this, this, this in that vineyard always go for that wine because always give these characteristics. And I think this is important when you vinify the wine. I think one of the important things is when young people arrive to me, they want to start making wines, they have a conversation, what should I do? And then I always say, well, the best thing to make wines is to go and study philosophy. Because the first thing is knowing what you want to do with what you have. And in many cases, people, they want a certain wine and they don't care what they have. And they say, with that vineyard, you cannot do that wine, forget it. Or I have the best vineyard in the world, I want to do the best wine in the world. Do you know what is the best wine in the world? No. So why starting for what do you like and what do you want to do? And this is it, it's difficult. It's it's a very difficult for any producer, special people that are not related to, with wine and say, what wine you want to do? I want to do a good wine. And what is a good wine for you? Well, a good wine. Okay. Can we be more specific? Do you remember any wine that you have in memory? Every, oh, I love Barolos. Okay, but this is not Barolo. You cannot do a Barolo here. It's not the same thing. Oh, I love this style. Okay. We start by that, but we have to understand what we have in the vineyard. And with certain vineyards, we may do a very good wine, but we cannot do a great wine. So we, we shouldn't make the effort for a great wine because the wine is going to be worse. A great vineyard, you normally don't need to do much, and the wine is going to be very good. So taking this in consideration, when you have many wines to do it, what is really important, it's for you to know the vineyards. That being said, and I totally get it about self-knowledge and yeah. how hard that is to be humble that way, but how many great vineyards are there in Naduro? From your experience, what do you think? There are a lot of great vineyards in Naduro, still unknown, and probably a lot that I don't know yet. It gets to a certain point that it's not measurable. You have to recognize it's subjective. Depend on the wine you want to make, but you see a very old vineyard on the top of the hill with a certain exposition, and you know that is going to give you good wines. And there's still a lot in Doro that probably are being lost in the blend of a thousand different other vineyards. And the reason we don't know that is because of the history of fortified wine, but the history of basically negotiating production. Of course, and the knowledge that used to exist was for the port wines. But the port wines were always a bit secretive about their best places for the vineyards. So the port producers, even when they would be going buying the wines to the grower, 
they would knew this valid's very good. You give a certain kind of wines. That valid's very good. Give wines with more structure. So you have Culver's Valley always give wines that are more fruity, elegant wines, but really with a lot of complexity. While you go to other valleys like the Tedo Valley, valleys that give more tenants or more structure, they would knew that, but they wouldn't pass the information to anyone. It's very interesting. Still today, you go to to any old cellar in Porto of of port wines. You can w- talk with the people that were working there. Everything is a secret. It's very interesting. So that knowledge was not shared. And also, in the end, those wines were bland. Anyway, so unless you do a vintage port, those wines were bland. And a vintage port many times takes a lot of time to see the final result, many, many years. So the wines suffer the same problem. You don't vinify the specific vineyard for doing a wine. or Of course you have, but not that many, not the majority in the, in the region. So you don't have that knowledge of the region. So you're really starting just touching that subject and whatever work I may do for the rest of my life is going to be almost nothing and you, you need more than one, two or three generations to get the proper knowledge of the area, of the place. I mean, it's probably true that if I'm a port wine house buying grapes, I don't want to tell the person that's growing the grapes that they have an incredible vineyard because I don't own it, and then they're just going to charge me more. So Yeah, of course. And the majority of the producers in Doru, they do like that. They have a vineyard, but they also source grapes outside. So that's what happened. You know, you have different vineyards, and they may be good, but it's not their vineyard, so what's the point? When you started your own venture, and yeah. you do consulting work for a number of small wineries as well, but when you started your own venture, what was important to you? The most important thing, do wines that I like. In this line of business, you're dead if you don't do what you like. You will not survive. It's a hard job. You don't earn that much money. It takes a lot of time to start to earn money. It's better to do what you love and what you like. And the idea was to do the wines that I like, 100% no compromise. And I think in many situations, people worry too much about the market and the consumer. And consumer is a big name for, I don't know what, because I never met this person, the Mr. Consumer, because the consumer like it, the consumer don't like it. Who is this person? Because there are so many different consumers, so many different people that like different wines. So it doesn't make any sense. And especially you doing wines, you're not selling a big mass product that being sold in all the supermarkets. You're doing a wine that wants to tell a story about the place and about the person. So do something more personal as possible because that's the way to pass the message. Of course, you're always going to have people that hate those wines. You're going to have people that love those wines. You're going to have people that like the wines and drink it, but they're not really passionate about them. But that's normal. That's life. You cannot do the wines for everyone to everyone to like. It's impossible. And one of the things I saw, and this may be because we're about the same age, but one of the things I saw coming out of that 90s situation was that there were actively people making and selling wines, selling, I also mean the sommiers, that they didn't like. And that's when the wines started to become caricatures because when you're making something you don't like or you're selling something you don't like, you're assuming in a cynical fashion that this person likes this and the the only reason you're making it is because the person likes it, but you don't like it. So your meter for judging what is in line is off 
and the wines end up becoming like caricatures. What I've learned with time, if you don't like the wine, at least if you're honest with yourself, you don't sell the wine. No point to bottle a wine that you don't like because you never open the bottle to show to anyone. You're almost afraid to, because you're not, you don't believe in that wine. So what's the point? I'm doing a wine and then I'm afraid to open the bottle and serve to people because I don't trust it. I don't defend that wine 100%. So that happens a lot with uh, an Alvarinho I do, Granito Cru. It's an oxidized Alvarinho, so not common. So it's one that spends one year, no sulfur, it's a lot of oxidation. It was really difficult in the beginning to explain people, okay, this is a different approach. You know Alvarinho, this is a different Alvarinho. And in many cases, people know, but this is oxidized, isn't it? Well, it is today, but in the future, it's not going to be. And that's kind of no, nonsense. People say, well, he's, this guy is crazy. This cannot be. And now I can convince people, because now I opened a 2013, together with all the other Alvarinius. And I just, okay, taste now. And this oxidative character, what I wanted was to eliminate the noise of the variety that speaks very loud. So it's very exuberant, and I don't want that fruit of the variety. It's a nice fruit, I love the fruit, but I wanted to do something different. So reduce the tone of the variety in the final wine. Well, I think in general you take a kind of anti-varietal approach, whether you're blending or whether you're labeling, because you label by soil type. Normally, yes. Yeah, the variety is less important for me. When you have the approach of the soil... You have to forget a little bit the variety, or the variety is a tool for you to show the soil. And that happens, for instance, in uh, the Doru White, Shishtukru White. It's an old, very old vineyard, eight years old vineyard, where the big majority of the plantation is Javigat. 70% is Javigat. And why do I like the variety? Because it doesn't express at all. It's something that easily you can show the soil. You don't notice that much the aromatics of the variety. It's really very shy. It's nothing jumping out of the glass. And that's why I like that specific variety. It's a very good variety to show the character of the soil. And actually, if you really try to understand the different regions and the most famous Burgundy, locally, when the wine smells like the variety, it's negative. And the French say, the wine should smell the place should have the characteristics of the place and not the variety, because the variety is there all over. So if you want to show the variety, everyone has the same variety. What's the point? Well, it's also kind of the way forward in a global market where you can make that variety in the exactly. southern hemisphere and you could irrigate exactly. and you can exactly. pump out a yeah. million cases if you wanted to. The really challenging thing is to get that variety, that or any other, a Pinot Noir from Burgundy or, any, or a Nebbiolo outside of, of Barolo, and making something with that variety that really shows the place. And people tend not to do that. If they do a Pinot Noir, they want to imitate Burgundy. If I do an Aviolo outside, I want to imitate Barolo. You never really try to understand the place. So what you do do is you label by soil type. So for instance, as we said, in Vino Verde, where you make an Alvarino, the soil type is often granite. So you yeah. call that granito. And then you say cru, C-R-U, but for you, you're not referring to a vineyard. You're referring to the Portuguese word for raw. Yeah, this is the Portuguese word for raw because doing less intervention, I believe I can show better the place and the soil. So the name of the wine is really raw granite. Yes. You also play with the word of cru with the French 
knowledge of the word, but the true meaning is the raw soil in the bottle. I think it's really clever because it does play on that double meaning of crew. But as a consumer, I shouldn't go looking for the Granito or the Shisto crew because those aren't vineyards. They're names of soil types. And what you're saying for the Duro wines, which are made on schist, is that it, it's raw schist. Yeah. I started 2013. Recently, I didn't have much money. I still don't have much money anyway. But I still don't own any vineyards. Some of the vineyards I work myself some other grapes I source. Once I own my own vineyard, maybe I can put the name of the vineyard in Shishkuda. Once I rent, there's no point. Now what I'm showing is the soil. One day I hope I can show a specific vineyard. Maybe we could just walk through the winemaking. We sort of have in your development of the technique that you're doing now, but essentially for red wines, you're doing 30-day macerations, whole cluster, intercellular, you're not crushing. You're not crushing, but if you say, okay, you everything whole cluster, you don't crush the grapes, you're doing uh, carbonic maceration. No, it's not carbonic maceration. I ferment open vats. I don't work a lot, but I do work a little bit. So by the end of vinification, I do have some whole clusters going to the press, but the majority is not. Because you punch down. Because I punch down with my hands, with my foot, a little bit of pump over. There's a Little work, but there's always a little bit of work. So actually, it's not really carbonic maceration because that gives a totally different kind of wine. Carbonic maceration should be done in a totally closed environment where we only have CO2 and nothing else. So there are different things, and people misuse the term when they use the term carbonic maceration. But it is true that the wines fermented like that have a different fruit profile. If you ferment part of the fermentation, with a closed berry, even if it is this stem, but the entire berry, the fruit profile is, it's difficult to describe, but I would, always more elegant, always a little bit more light. While you can be even more exuberant if you crush the berries, but the profile is totally different. And again, it's not right or wrong, better or worse, it's just a different profile. And you feel that in the wines. And in this case, when you do that, the most important part of the wine for me is the pressed wine. So I never separate the presses because a lot of the beautiful character of the wine is in that press. So I press, use all the press, and all the press goes together with the wine. For me, that's very important because it happened already by accident or the vet doesn't take everything. So part of the press went to another vet and then you end up putting in barrel in a separate barrel. And then you can taste the same wine, the press wine and the wine without press or with less quantity of press. And you see the difference. And of course, in the beginning, the press wine could be a little bit more complicated, but during the aging, you see how the wine from the press is always more beautiful, always more elegant, and not in terms of the tannins, but in terms of the aromatics. Oh, that's interesting. You're saying with the press wine, you get a more complex aromatic profile. Yeah, because you have a lot of whole cluster. The juice that is inside... You only got out when you press the wine. And you're doing that with balloons. You're doing that with pneumatic. That's the press I have today. I'm in a rented winery, so maybe next year I would do I would prefer to do everything in the vertical press. For the reds, clearly in the vertical press. But I have a pneumatic press and that's what I use. Why would you prefer to do it in the vertical press? The red wines, at that moment when you finish fermentation, the oxygen is very good for the wine. 
the apport of oxygen you give to a wine when you do it in a vertical press. It's very good and also can be more gentle. So if you do a cycle of the press in a rotative press, the skins fermented go around and around on the pneumatic press. And I don't like to touch much the grapes to put it into vet, but I even like less to touch the fermented skins to put it in the press and to press it. If I could put everything by hand in a vertical press and just press it, not shaking and moving and everything, so the result is also totally different. You get much more sediments when you use the rotative press, and you are more aggressive. And by then, you already have alcohol, on the wine that can extract bad things from the seeds, the, the stems, whatever. So I want to be very gentle by the end of the vinification to put the skins in the press. For the whites, you mentioned that you make the Alvarino in Vino Verde, but you also make white in the Duro. And with that, you do something really different in terms of how you make the reds. And that starts even with the crushing and the pressing, right? Well, one thing that I always believe is when you do the white wine, in general, you should not protect them a lot. Making wines a little bit like raising a child, you get them two boundaries, two limits. In between those limits, they should go whatever. And when they tend to get out of the limits, you have to put them on the right track. In this case, counts also the oxidation. I like the juice to be a bit oxidized. So everything that is oxidized in the beginning, it's something that is not going to be oxidized in the future when you're decanting the wine. You lose a little bit of fruit with that. I also don't like to be hyper-oxidative where you lose everything. I like to have the balance. I think the wine's too aged. It's enough that you don't worry that much about the oxidation on the juice. Or then you really do it conscious and know that you need to add a little bit of oxygen or not to the wine depending how the press works. But that allows the wine to survive the future. For many years, I had this experience, keep on having the same experience, tasting many wines that I know they are made very protective. You know, the grapes come of the vineyards, you put sulfur. Arrive to the wine, you put sulfur. Press, you put sulfur. You put sulfur to the press. And sulfur. And those wines, they come out to the market with exuberant fruit, but that fruit dies after six months. You open the bottle, and the wine you open lives for 15, 20 minutes, and then starts to fade away. Well, it could be also that the vineyard's not that good, and it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons is you protect too much the wine. So, again, raising a child, if you keep them always inside of the house, the first day they're going to school, they're going to get a cold. That's for sure. And the wine too. If you never give them oxygen, the first time they get out of the glass, they're going to oxidize. So I think in this case, you have to have a balance. I think it's more the sensibility you have than really to have a number. I don't measure things. I should be more professional. I should measure. I taste. But adding this little bit of oxidation to this wine, we're losing oxidative aspects Parts of the wine that could be oxidized, so they would be staying in the lees. And then when you put it fermenting, that is not going to oxidize anymore. One of the things you've told me is that in the Duro for white, often those grape varieties have some tannins in the skins. And you try to be very careful about that. Some of the varieties 
like Malvasia, I don't work with Malvasia. I avoid to have Malvasia on the dry wines, but Malvasia and others, they can have a bit of tannin. Even the Gauvet, you can have a bit of tannin. So when you put it into the press, I never use sulfur into the press because that sulfur can extract tannins. And I never do skin contact. Some people like to do skin contact, maceration. In my wines, that style, I don't like to have that skin contact because that gives a little bit of texture. So again, it's not better or worse. It's just a different character wine. So I do, for instance, for other producers, as a consultant, I do other wines 100% with the skins and fermented with the total skins. But there I have a totally different profile. You always have to have acidity. To have skin contact, you really have to have high acidity. And that's another reason why in Doru it's much more difficult to do skin contact wines because to have high acidity, you really have to search for the specific vineyard. And one of the things you like to do with whites is you like to get a lot of free one juice. There's two different ways that you can do press. You can receive the whole cluster with the stems, everything, and just press quickly. Which would be like the champagne style. The champagne style. Or what I do in many cases is I destem and crush the berries because I want to take all the juice possible without pressing. Like this, I'm able to take a lot of juice without pressing and I'm able to use lower pressure level on the wines. So I don't use anything higher than 0.8 bar on the pressing. If you're doing champagne method, you have to get much higher if you want to take a little bit of juice. That have the positive things and the negative things. The negative thing is you have much more lease. Going around, you have much more lease. You don't have stems there because you're always rotating and you don't want the tendons of the stems in the white. So the stems help a lot filtering all the juice out of the skins. In this case, they don't. So I may lose a little bit of juice in the end, but what I get, I really get clean and almost no press added there. And again, that goes back to that point of you're trying not to get tannins out of the skins. Yes. You're trying not to press. Exactly. That's what I don't want is I don't want the tannins in the whites. And then what's a typical elevage for white for you? Decant the wines, put it in barrel to ferment. They stay there until bottling. Normally one year, that's the time they stay in barrel. In case of shish to crew, one year gets out of the barrel and stay more six months in stainless steel. So when you do aging in barrel, the wines tend to get a little bit rounder, a bit more flabby. So when you put back to the stainless steel, they get vertical again. A few months in stainless steel, in case of the whites, I think it does make a big difference on the final result. Do the leaves go into the wood with the juice or no? Always take a little bit of the leaves, but the majority is clean. To have a clean nose, you have more problems doing the vinification because without adding yeasts, vinification may take a little bit longer. But if you add the sediments, you also add more noise to the final result. The vinification goes much faster, it's much easier to do it, but you have more noise. So if you want really precise, I like to clean a little bit the juice. It seems like sometimes you like mallow to happen and sometimes you don't. I do mallow, 100% mallow in the Alvarinho all the time. In the Douro, I avoid the mallow. It may happen, it's an accident in the barrel. I don't want that. I want to preserve the freshness of the Douro. And I don't think Douro, in majority of the cases, have acidity enough to be able to 
do mellow and still keep the freshness in this vertical aspect of the wine. Your first harvest under your own label was 2013. So it's a brief run of vintages, but can we talk about what you've learned from those five years? 13 was a warmer year. The wines are generous. I remember we had the rain middle September, and I remember to be able to harvest everything before this 13th of September. It was a normal year, not that complicated. On the other hand, 14 was a colder year with a lot of late rain. During the summer, August, July, you had rain even in September. And initially, you may think, well, it's a rainy year, less quality. I think in warmer areas, those rainy, more complicated years give much more interesting wines. They are much more edgy. And in the beginning, people may like less those wines. But in the long term, I bet that not only my wine, I bet that we taste all the 2014 wines in 10 years, they're going to be showing better than the 15s and the 13s. It's normal that in a good warm year, all the small vineyards that tend not to give interesting wines, they give a good wine. And that's why it's a good year. But the great vineyards, the great wines, in the case of a warm area, they are better in the cold years. So 14 was complicated. 15, during the harvest, I was pretty sure that I don't like those wines. Not my style. Everything was ripe. Not overripe, but everything was easy. You could harvest today, tomorrow, nothing happened. So beautiful, arriving to the dark in color, very deep in color. Totally the opposite of what I want. And even in the beginning of the aging, and not my style, so I would bring people, and I tend to be very honest about my wines, and, well, taste it, I don't like it. But then after a few months, the wines start to change a little bit. They start to seem like a northern Rhone red. And okay, I, I can live with this. The wines became better and better. I still believe that the 14s are better. But saying that, for instance, the top Shishtukru 15, it's showing so well and so beautiful that you have your doubts. And now, if I have to bet, I still bet on 14, but I may change my opinion in three or four years' time. I've done that. That happened, for instance, with the Alvarinho, with the Granito Cru. You have 13 and 14. 13 was heavier. Of course, I always said, well, 14, high acidity. I like it. It was more oxidative because depending on the years, some years you get more oxidative or less, but high in acidity. So this is the wine. Now the 13 is showing so well that I have my doubts. You're kind of dividing up vintages like I often divide up vintages, which is into cooler and warmer years. In a warmer area like we have, yes, tend to be like that. You can also have a higher production year or lower production year. That doesn't make a big difference when you work with old vines because they're always low production. Actually, in this case, the wines could be even better if you have a little bit higher production. You already have a lot of concentration. That is the case of 16. 16 have a very good production, but a bit more imbalance in terms of acidity and I still think that they give very interesting wines and eventually, in many cases, in the Doro Valley, better than the 15s, but was not a totally balanced year in terms of harvest. But a very hot summer, the maturation was kind of with jumps up and down, so a little bit more instable. 17, it's a disaster. <laughs> Is that true, yeah? Just because of the heat or? 
the heat start in January. We didn't have any winter. So I finished the harvest 31st of August. Never before in my life in Dura. It's true that now you taste the wine. It's the same thing. You know, in the beginning, we are very dramatic. We say, oh, this is a disgrace. The wines are okay. We're going to see how it's in the long term. But something you have to harvest in August. It's not something like this year, 2018, that I finished harvesting 5th of October. That's a normal thing when you have to harvest at 5th of October. How can a wine harvest in 31st of August can be better than the wine harvest in the 5th of October? I think it's hard to get a lot of complex aroma out of a wine that's matured on the vine for a short time. That's something that happens in warm areas, specifically in Dora, but in warm areas in general for the white wines. And in Dora, it was very interesting to follow the trends of the white wine vinification. So the first whites in the Dodo, they were more or less undrinkable. People didn't know how to do whites. Then arrived people that have knowledge, technique, and then suddenly people realized that, oh, we need acidity to do white wines, of course. So let's harvest the wines earlier. But in many cases, the white wine vineyards are not well planted and they ripe. So meaning harvest earlier could be harvest in August. And in the end, finishing having a wine that is very high in acidity but doesn't have anything else. So that's why it's so important when you do a white wine in a warm area, in this case Toro, that you choose the right vineyards at a higher altitude not to force you to harvest too early, to leave time for the grapes to mature in the vine, and not only looking for a number, the acidity. So many Doro wines, you have this sensation of freshness, nothing else on the palate, a bit bitter, because they were just harvest too early. So if we harvest later, probably you will lose in acidity, and that's a problem. Or maybe you shouldn't work with that vineyard, you should choose another vineyard to do a good white wine. The Doro viticulture is easy in general. In a normal year, it's easy to do it sulfur and copper. You don't need more than that. The main problem that is a big disgrace in Doro, it's the herbicides. Vineyards, they are very steep. Very old people taking care of those vineyards. Work that you only can do with the horse. There's no other way to do work the soils. So the tendency is to everyone to put herbicides. More than that, the new plantations in what we call the patamars, the small terraces, you have a huge surface exposed that you don't have vineyard that is just there to grow any kind of weed, whatever, vegetation. That's a big problem because convincing people that they shouldn't use herbicide, changing that, but realizing that the costs are not the same, that's the most difficult thing. So actually in the Doro Valley, it tends to be easy if you have a vineyard that is not in terrace or it's more or less flat. We always have inclination in the door, of course, but you can pass with a tractor or even with a horse easily just to plow or to take out the weeds because the problem with the weeds is until June, July. After that, the weeds get dry, naturally. But in that moment, you really have competition. And you have competition with the vines. First, it's very difficult because everything is stony, so just cutting the grass is very difficult. But you have a dry year. April, May, you have a competition between the soil cover and the vine. So there's a lot of work. 
and this is the main problem. So convincing the people not to use herbicides, the herbicides is way too much use, and you really don't need it because it's a dry area, but it's much more work. What you're saying is for wine quality, you actually tend to prefer some of the flatter vineyards where they can get a tractor in as opposed to the terrace vineyards that you would think would be higher quality. I would prefer always not to use herbicides. And you clearly see that in the acidity of the wine. The moment you cut the herbicides, you see that the acidity in the pH of the wine is not the same. That's for sure. But that involves some work, some extra costs. The majority of the Doro, it's still not prepared to do it. One producer, another producer can do it, but the majority still doesn't do it. And that is the main problem. You want to maintain freshness. And for you, the use of herbicides changes the pH of the wine, and that takes away from freshness. That's one of the consequences. That's not the only consequence, but it's one of them. And, of course, you're killing everything. You're killing the soil. There's nothing live in the soil. In the vineyards in the Douro, when you change not to use the herbicides, the first two years you really don't need to take care because there's so much quantity of herbicides in those soils that take time to revive. We spoke about how old vines can bring concentration to a wine. You're doing blending. So do you want sometimes to blend in young vine fruit with old vines to bring more juice to the wine? No, normally not. The youngest vineyards I work, it's 25 years old. So it's really not young anymore by the way it behaves. But it's very clear to taste the fruit of a younger vine and of an older vine. And the fruit of the younger vine, it's always more immediate. And many times, tasting blindly, I ask, well, is this a younger vine? Oh, how do you know? This is the fruit profile of a younger vine. And that fruit, I don't want necessarily in my wines. I don't need to have that in my wine. I need to have freshness. And I need that the profile of the fruit, so when you decide to harvest, you have different profiles. You can choose to harvest green. You can choose to harvest on the red fruit. You can choose to harvest on the black fruit, on the ripe black fruit, and on the overripe black fruit, and on the nightmare. I prefer to have the red fruit. I prefer my wines to be more on that area. But doesn't mean that in many cases the wine have that much fruit. So when you use the stems, you lose a little bit of that. When you do malolatic in barrel, you lose a little bit of the fruit. So all of that, it's pushing the fruit character a little bit down. But it's a fruit that is going to stay for a longer time, in my opinion. When it comes to the finished wines, I know there's multiple cuvées, but for example, one of the reds, when should I think about drinking it? Should I think about decanting it? Or when should I start approaching the wine? I think my wines in general, what I advise everyone is to decant the wine, white and reds. I would say that the Shishtu Limitado, both white and reds, they are to drink young. I do believe they can age for a long time, but the objective is to be drinking in two, three, four years' time, and I think they can easily last for more than 10 years. I still do a wine to have structure, to age, but still has to be a wine that you're able to drink. I don't think any of my wines, even using the stems and having the tannins, I don't think any of them are not drinkable when they're young. They're going to give you much more pleasure when you drink it later, but I do believe that when the wine goes to the bottle, it has to go balanced. But the wines do seem more textural than pretty, right? Yeah. I mean, they're called raw for a reason, right? That's the whole idea. When I drink a wine, and with time, 
I start to appreciate more the wines that are a bit more shy, that you have to make a bigger effort and you join the wine in the glass. So you have to search for the wine in the glass. The wines that you have the glass and they jump out of the glass to meet you, I would say that those wines are more immediate but less in the long term. So my wines, that's why if you do a, a speed tasting or, or you score the wines, I never believe when people give me high scores because it's a wine that if you don't wait a little bit in the glass, if you don't have half an hour, the wine change a lot. And those are the wines that I like and those are the wines that I want to do. Wines that have more deepness, but I think with the longer aging, they're going to show much better. You see that, you know, you have the freshness, you have the texture. Those wines need time. Those wines need time to balance, to integrate. And those are wines that really you need to spend a little bit more time with the wine. So what are the reference points for you? To get to this place, I imagine there were some reference points that were kind of key for you. And I just wonder what they were. Uh, if you think the Doro, it's the oldest the market region as we know, but for the still wines, it's the most difficult region to get a reference. I don't know what to look back to do something like. The oldest one is the Barca Velha, 52 or 57. In the Alvarinho area, I know that the old white wines, they were made like I do it today. They were aged in wood, bottled much later, so never before May. So what I do today have some similarities how the wines used to be done to drink locally there. In the Douro, if I want to go back in history, you really don't have anything that you can use as a reference. And it's interesting because whenever you go and travel and visit the different wine regions, you really think, you really, well, this makes sense. And then the big mistake is you come to your area and you replicate it. You do exactly the same story. It never works. So it's very interesting to see how people worked, how people thought to get to a certain destiny, and then that helps you to find a solution for your own situation. But your own region, your own situation is a very specific thing. If you apply something from outside just straight in, it never works. So Doro, for many years, the producers compare themselves with Bordeaux and with other areas. Douro as a region, it's much more similar to Rhone Valley, the North Rhone Valley, than anything else. So if you want to use a reference without the Syrah, that's Rhone Valley. So they are elegant, but elegant to a certain point. Rhone is like that. Rhone is very elegant, but it's always Rhone, never going to be uh, Burgundy or Bordeaux. It's a different region. So many of the things I do, well, could be a Rhone vinification, open wood vats with stems, more or less long skin contact is exactly the same thing they do in Rome. Even the aging in barrel is similar. Not that I just doing because they do it in Rome, just by accident tends to be like that. So it seems like you're already sort of on the knife edge of the challenges to bring in texture and freshness into a region that's warm. Yeah. So as climate change happens, what do you think is going to happen in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? I don't know how it's going to be the future. I don't know how it's going to be the weather. I know that not only the Doro, the biggest change is not the climate, is the viticulture. Once you pass from small canopy vineyards, 6,000 plants or 7,000 plants per hectare, to two, three, four thousand plants per hectare, high canopy, very high, the vineyards are more efficient. They can produce bigger quantity of grapes, 
with the same amount of alcohol or even more and with some acidity. But they lose much more water. And in an area that is dry, the water is precious. For many, many years, we made a big effort to have more efficient vineyards. Maybe we've done a too good job and we have to go back. So, less efficient vineyards in warm areas, they would adapt much better to the climate change. In the Douro Valley, what will be really interesting that is very difficult because of the slopes, it's to have three-dimensional viticulture. So when you pass the viticulture from warm areas, from three-dimensional, when the cluster is inside and you pass for one dimension only, again, the vineyards are more efficient, the cluster are more exposure, everything goes ripe faster. And that's also one of the reasons why the date of harvest changed so much. It's not only the climate change, it's the viticulture that changed a lot. So the vineyards start to be much more efficient, and then we have to harvest much earlier. Is one of the reasons that you're searching out old vines so that you can find canopies that are in the old style? Also, and not necessarily old vines. If I have a vine planted that way, with that density, that is not that old, 20 years, 30 years, it's already good for me. So this density of plantation, it's very important to have a certain result. And the response of the vineyard is totally different. And the variation, the fluctuations with the different years, it's much less important. And the vineyards survive much better a dry year. I want the maturation to go even and to take longer time. And that is the way you manage the canopy. Meaning, in the warm area like Dori, you don't need to take leaves. You don't need to do that. It's interesting because in the very old vines, they have the practice of not cutting the top of the vineyard, but rolling up the vines in the wire. So everything is rolled up, so you never use the scissors. And of course, when I arrive in the beginning, it's about these people don't know anything about viticulture. This is absurd. You never do that. And then in time, you realize that in those old vines, that makes all the sense. Because that little leaves that stay there, they're working. Some of them, they roll up. And of course, you lost them, but some of them, they are working. If you go in there and just cut, you don't have the young vegetation coming out and renovating the old one. So... You take everything you get, so don't cut anything, just roll it up. In a warm area like Doru, I don't want to speed up the maturation process. I want things to go easy. And if I can have canopy to protect the clusters, even better. Do you find it easy to sell Portuguese red wines? Or do you find it difficult? I find it incredibly more easy to sell Portuguese wines, and I have demand for Portuguese wines. I think Portugal is in the moment that finally people are realizing what they have. And many different markets is, is the people coming to me and not me having to knock the doors to sell the wines. And in general, I think there is more recognition for Portugal. It's still a very unknown country. It's something that is still foggy for the majority of the consumers. But you have more and more people interested on the wines, especially the sommeliers and that people that are more attentive to the wine world. Luis Chiabra has realized what he has in Portugal, within the Douro Valley and within Vino Verde. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Luis Chiabra of Luis Chiabra Vinos. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ramus 
and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Historically, in the Doru, in the more higher altitude, typically they would blend white and red. Wine was food, wine was part of the meal, wine was to take to the vineyard to drink, so they wouldn't want to have wines with a lot of color, they wouldn't want a lot of alcohol because they would drink in volume. So they would blend white and reds together. In the outskirts of the Doru, you still see some vineyards with white and reds blend, but this is rare.